I'm Cameron Harold, the founder of the Second in Command podcast. Really quick, before we jump into today's episode, you need to know about two important ways that we can help you and your company grow. Number one, check out the COO Alliance. It's for COOs, presidents, VP ops, or whoever is your company's second in command to the CEO. The COO Alliance is the world's leading community for the second in command, and it gives COOs the tools and connections to grow themselves and the company. Head over to COOalliance.com to learn more about our members and the results, the program, and our 10x guarantee. If you qualify for membership, you can set up a complimentary call with our team to discuss if it's right for you. I'll tell you about number two in a bit, but first, let's start this week's episode. In my career, I was always biasing towards equity. So when I was evaluating opportunities, I always wanted the long-term upside. And, you know, my vision of that was I was playing the long game. You know, it's like, I don't want to just earn a salary. You know, I want to, I want financial freedom. I, I want that upside. I want to see the upside of the things I'm investing my energy into. Welcome to the Second in Command podcast, produced by the COO Alliance and brought to you by its founder, Cameron Harold. In the Second in Command podcast, we talk to top COOs who share the insights, strategies, and tactics that made them the chief behind the chief. And now, here's your host, Cameron Harold. All right, we've got a great guest today on the Second Command podcast, a Canadian from Edmonton, Canada named Ben Zitlau. Ben is the CTO and Chief Operating Officer of Parakeeto. They're a software company that are, they build software for uh, marketing agencies and digital agencies, creative agencies. Great platform, great product. He's going to talk a lot about his methodologies and systems thinking, his um, approach to actually building companies, the way that he talks about problem-centric thinking, the way that he gets his team to analyze problems and situations before he says no to their ideas or says yes to the ideas and the same approach at working with customers. I think you'll like some of his methodologies and thought processes behind not only building the company, but also working with the clients that they have. We'll see you on the inside. You can also watch this episode on our Second Command Podcast YouTube channel. So Ben, welcome to the Second in Command podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, looking forward to um, to chatting with you today and to learning from you today. Also, um, love the fact that you are based in Edmonton, Canada, where my wife and I uh, met 14 years ago. So it's kind of a, a good spot for me. We were actually in Edmonton this summer. I don't know if you remember when the the big fires hit Kelowna and the whole lake oh, yeah. you know, lit up with flames. We were there for about 36 hours. We were supposed to be there for the whole week. Um, hanging out with friends from Kelowna that are all entrepreneurs. And after 36 hours of really brutal air, we just said, let's get out of here. And we drove to Edmonton. So we drove from Kelowna to Edmonton, hung out in Edmonton for five days, reconnected with some friends there that we have, John Trapp and Mandy Trapp and a couple others that she's friends with. And then we bailed back into Jasper and Banff. So I got to spend some time in your hometown this summer too. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. So why don't you the Jasper um, just, and Bamford, beautiful. Oh, sorry. <laughs> they're, no, they're extraordinary. Yeah. Well, th that whole region of of um of Alberta is amazing. That whole section kind of, you know, just west of, of Edmonton and Calgary, that whole section is spectacular. And if anybody's listening and you've never been, you really do have to put it very high on your bucket list to go. It's pretty amazing. So why don't you start us off and just walk us through what Parakeeto is, what your business does and kind of how you guys got to where you are today. And then I've got a lot to actually start asking you about, but why don't we just start off with letting everybody who's listening understand what you do. Yeah, 
I'll try and keep this reasonably tight. So my education is in engineering and I've been an entrepreneur now for 10 or 15 years. And the lens I bring to business is very much a systems lens. I view businesses as, as systems. And consequently, data is a big part of how we think about business and, and how I like to look at business. But there's a whole challenge of how to do something that is, you know, based more in reality than just throwing, you know, best guesses in a spreadsheet. And um, that that's really what we're trying to do at Parakeeto is trying to equip digital agencies is what we focus on. So things like web web development shops, marketing agencies, design agencies. And um, basically trying to equip them with data from their the actual operations of their business so they can get reports and get visibility into what's going on within the walls. And based on that, be able to run a more efficient shop, a more profitable shop. And, and uh, you know, often finding that, you know, 5 or 10% improvement that can be the difference between a pretty profitable business versus a business that's losing money. So, so that's, that's what we focus on doing. And the business kind of has two sides. One of it is more service oriented, so consulting and, and kind of expertise. And then we have technology behind that to actually pull the data in, process the data, um, and uh, generate reports so that the business owners can look at those reports. It's interesting. Why did you select the agency world? Why is that where your you know your client base is? Yeah, it's a great question. So the business actually had a previous co-founder before me. So there's another CTO, which was a gentleman out of uh, Boise, Idaho. And uh, he had an agency and was having these problems that many agencies do to actually get this kind of visibility and had the classic insight of, oh, if I'm having this problem, other people are probably also having this problem. Why don't we try and build some software to address this problem? So that's kind of where his background came from. And then um, my business partner now, Marcel, got brought in to be his co-founder and, and kind of take on the CEO and the sales and marketing side of things. So that was the initial kind of, you know, origin story of the business was it came out of that space. And where we are today is, you know, the the framework and the technology and everything that we built, we believe applies to almost any service business. So, you know, you could apply to professional services, you could apply to home services, but, you know, we're a small company. So the niche that we were born into was in the, the digital agency space. And it's kind of where we're known and we built authority over time. So that's uh, so what we're focusing on today. It's interesting. Do you think it is that the fact that you're in that space and you've built up the domain authority, is that what allows you to be scaling a company that is in SaaS and is in, in consulting, but it's based in like Prince Edward Island, Canada, which no one from outside of Canada has ever heard of. I've been there and it's incredible, but it's like a province in Eastern Canada that has, has like a half a million people in it at best. And Edmonton, like two of the non-tech hubs you know, in the, in the world, but you're running like a technology company there. Has that domain expertise and um, given you the credibility or ability to run from there? Or does anybody even care anymore where we're based? Yeah, you know, that's a that's a fascinating question. And I think there's, you know, a, a number of different elements underneath that. So one, in terms of location, I think we're still seeing things in flux and playing out. And, and you know, the the how important it is where you're based, there's certainly still brand value. And, you know, brand value to being out of San Francisco or, or Silicon Valley or, you know, in the, in the Canadian scene, maybe more uh, Toronto, Ottawa, Vancouver. And uh, so I think I think that side of things still matters. And then in terms of, you know, building a team and access to talent, 
that's an interesting challenge being remote and again, hybrid work back to office, exactly how that's going to play out. I think we're still seeing evolve over time in terms of who we work with though. Like we work internationally. So like mm-hmm. we do work out of Canada, but most of our work is of the U S we also do work out of Europe. We've worked with clients out of Australia and yeah, we have pretty deep brand authority that we've built over four or five years, being present in the space, writing good content, being at events, and, uh, you know, my, my business partner on, on the front edge of that, more on the sales side, might have a, you know, a bit of a different lens, but it really, on the customer acquisition side, it, it doesn't seem to matter. So it's like, maybe there's an advantage to saying that you're in one of those big places, you know, we're a Silicon Valley-based company. But I think once you're outside of that, it, it doesn't really act as a headwind or kind of a detriment in, in the way that maybe it used to in the past. Yeah. Um, you know, so much works remote, right? You get on a Zoom call, it doesn't really matter where that Zoom call is coming from as long as you got good internet. It's interesting. That's my gut now as well, is that pre-COVID it mattered. Pre-COVID, especially if you were going out to raise uh, VC funding, venture capitalists wanted to go to a hub where they could probably leverage that. And they, I don't know why it just somehow made sense to them, but it feels like post-COVID, no one cares anymore, as long as you're getting the work done and you're efficient and you're you're scaling it. And then I guess for you guys, it actually strategically is pretty strong when a bunch of your expenses are in Canadian dollars, but a bunch of your revenues in US dollars, uh, you're running a bit of an arbitrage opportunity at 72 yeah. cents of the dollar, which is pretty nice. Yeah. As, as, a, as a Canadian entrepreneur, unfortunately, I pretty early into the journey came to the insight that you know, if you're if you're based in Canada, go after the U.S. market. It's just not worth going yeah. after the Canadian market. It's unfortunate. I know, but uh, you know the the market, the U.S. market is ten times the size, and then you get this, you know, currently very juicy exchange rate. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Can you know California is bigger than all of Canada, so it kind of makes sense. So, what percentage of your revenues would be on the SaaS side of the business or the the tech side of the business, and what percent would be on the consulting side? And how about on the margin? Like what percentage of your gross margin would be on SaaS versus gross margin on the consulting side? Mm-hmm. Man, that, that's a great question. It, it's tricky because things are very much in flux and you know we're, we're developing as a company. So mm-hmm. the first two to three years of the business, we focused on being a SaaS company. So we were trying to be pure SaaS. Um, we actually had two products that we fully took to market as pure SaaS products and then didn't see a lot of traction and success on that. And then about two years ago, we basically shifted to a much more services-centric model, what we call technology-enabled services, where you know the service area to a customer is is really the services, you know, kind of um, delivery. But behind that, we're always investing in technology to make that you know those the service that's being delivered more efficient, um, you know, more effective. Uh, so we shifted that about two years ago, and that's really where we started to get a lot more traction and, you know, are able to bring on the first team members and kind of get some, you're just cash flowing through the business. Mm-hmm. And then we're always investing that into the technology. So basically customers come in on the front edge, it's very service heavy. And then once a customer matures more, you know, more of our, more of the value that they're receiving is, is from the actual platform and the software. Um, in terms of revenue, off the top of my head, because I, I haven't looked at these numbers recently, I guess it's probably about half and half where, you know, in the the goal is over time for the SaaS or kind of platform revenue to to grow and become a larger piece of the pie. But sure. currently it's probably somewhere between a third and a half. And 
You know, margin is tricky. This gets me, I have a whole rant about SaaS margin because I come, that's my background is, is I started in, in SaaS and, and web uh, entrepreneurship for about a decade. And we kind of kid ourselves in terms of gross margin in SaaS. We're like, oh, my servers cost me, you know, three grand a month and I've got, you know, half a million. So my gross margins, you know, 99%. But the reality is in SaaS is in built into those subscription fees is an assumption that first of all, you're supporting customers. So you've, you know, coaching, support teams, all those operational costs, Yeah. but, but also that you're continuing to invest into the product. Right. So you can't just, you know, discount your engineering costs and like, you know, hide them in some corner, which is often what's happening when you're talking about like SaaS gross margin. So anyways, like in terms of margin, our, our margins on our service deliveries is, is quite strong. And then on the platform side, they're really strong, but a lot of that is because I'm the only uh, engineering resource in the company right now. Um, and I, I currently come very cheap. <laughs> yeah. So you've got, you know, your gross margin on SaaS might be high, but your OPEX on SaaS is, is expensive. Your gross yeah. margin on the consulting might be low, but your OPEX is, is fixed and is fairly low. It's interesting. I think that for you guys, from my kind of layman's understanding, the software side of the business is probably where your strong lifetime value of the customer is and where your multiples are going to come from. And your consulting is really your cost of acquisition side where you bring them in and teach them the software and then you kind of keep them forever. Is that, it sounds like it's very similar in a way to a lot of the operating systems like, you know, 90.io um, or the yeah. EOS software where companies need to yeah. learn an operating system they learn the operating system, they adopt the technology, they start operating their business from the technology. They no longer need any coaching, but now they're so addicted to the technology that you've got them for 10 years. Is that kind of your play? You know, it's, I'll actually say no. Okay. So in our model, we won't, we don't do service business that isn't highly profitable. And this is really our area of expertise. So we, we kind of have an unfair advantage in that our area of expertise is um, service delivery profitability. So we're very good at measuring, you know, the profitability of our service delivery and designing our services such that they can be very profitable. And what actually happens is we use the profitability of our services to fund the R&D, to feed into the technology that actually then in turn makes our services even more profitable, which, you know, creates this, you know, virtuous cycle of, of that profitability feeding back into it. So we don't run with the model of kind of like use services as, you know, like a loss leader or, you know, a, an acquisition cost to get people onto the technology. Mm. Um, we actually use the, the services as, as a profit center. Okay. And um, I, I think that's really important because, that allows us to have a strong foundation to stand on where, you know, even as our, as we're continuing to evolve our technology, you know, trying to figure out retention, you know, trying to figure out, you know, how to evolve that over time, we're standing on a strong foundation of a profitable services businesses that we're, you know, building the technology behind. And then of course, like all the upside of the technical platform and, you know, being able to minimize the costs of supporting a customer you know, on that technology are the long-term, you know, plan and, you know, the long-term vision. Yeah. But, you know, we don't need that to subsidize the services business. And in fact, that, you know, the services business actually funds those investments. 
Does your software work outside of the marketing agency world? Like, does it work for PR agencies and, you know, strategy or consulting? Like, or is it just firmly, is it so firmly entrenched in, in marketing that it doesn't work outside of that? I guess where I'm going is, do you, do you have line extension later? Like, and there's no way you're even touching, you know, saturation in the market. The market's just huge, right? So. Yes, yes, exactly. So the, the our, our model, so the the horrible brand that we slapped on it was Parakeet Away, which was an accidental branding that, you know, is one of these classic things where we were just like, you know, at a at a strategic offsite and just talking about it. And so we called the Parakeet Away at the time. And then it's, it's what we still call today. We need to rebrand it. Anyways, our framework, you know, so like this is kind of a parallel to like an EOS or something. I don't think you need to rebrand it. What the fuck is <laughs> what is Apple what does Apple mean, right? Like why does yeah. Apple mean anything? I don't think like Ford yeah. was Ford was just a guy's yeah. name. So I don't I don't That's think right. you need to rebrand yeah. it all. Yeah. So our our framework is really framework for modeling a services business. So all our concepts and definitions, you know, things like how do you measure utilization? How do you define that? You know, how do you measure, you know, we don't use gross margin, we use delivery margin. Well, what is delivery margin? How does that differ from gross margin? All those ideas uh, apply to any service business. And we don't go looking for that work, but we've had some of those opportunities come in through the pipeline mm. and often we'll, we'll try them, you know, we'll, we'll work with the customer if it looks like it might be a good fit, even if they're outside of our box, because it gives an opportunity to test and see, well, how does this apply, you know, if we're kind of outside of our sweet spot. And we've actually had really good success with that. So the focus on our market is far more about the marketing than sales, you know, building authority, building a pipeline. But in terms of our actual core concepts, in terms of our technology, that's all very industry agnostic. And there's, I think, a lot of opportunity down the road to, you know, extend to other spaces or, you know, who knows, license the technology into other verticals. Yeah. But yeah, we've we've got time. It's, it's not something that we're we're in a big rush to do. As you mentioned, the the, the agency space is, is massive. We've got a long way to go to saturate. I wanted to take a quick break to tell you about something. The other day, I read about a COO writing about when the going gets difficult and how they were happy to be in the CEO mastermind group that they were. It made me remember that that's why I started the COO Alliance. It's a peer group and community for COOs and seconds in command of companies doing 5 million to 250 million in revenue. Our core group meets monthly online with other companies like yours. It's amazing because you get your frame broken tons of times. And when you think there's only one way to do something and one way to feel about something, you get your perspective completely changed on a regular basis. We also host hundreds of COOs on our monthly mastermind calls and smaller groups twice a year at our in-person COO Connect events. So if you're the founder or owner of a fast-growing company, tell your COO to check it out. And if you are the COO, head on over to the COOalliance.com to learn more about becoming a member today. All right, back to the podcast. You know, one of the things that I always hear from salespeople that are in the engineering or software space is, you know, if the product did X, Y, Z, I could sell it. And from the customers, you get the customers saying, oh, if it did X, Y, Z, we would buy it. How do you know how to filter those? And if you're building more functionality in for one company or for one salesperson, how do you charge for that? Like, do you, can you walk us through those, that decision matrix? Yeah. So, so first of all, 
any anyone in my company, my business partner or any of our employees, one of the one of the things they hear from me all the time is problem centric thinking. We, we are problem centric thinking. So this is something I rail on over and over and over again. Marcel, my business partner, has gotten very good at it. Uh, you know, after years and years and years of of me railing on it. So, you know, if if we get a situation where we get on a call with the customer and they're they're saying, you know, they need something or you know, there's some idea internally about something we need. The first question always is like, well, what problem, you know, what, what's the problem that that is meant to solve? And, you know, the belief, the customers are usually right about their problems. They're usually wrong about their solutions. So, you know, if they're asking for something, you know, this problem there hopefully is some kind of problem behind it. And if we just build understanding of the problems in our space, then we can think far more holistically and far more strategically about, you know, which solutions make sense for us to build, you know, are there ways to solve those problems in manual ways or by throwing man hours at it instead of building technology. So problem centric thinking for us is huge and basically trying to like, you know, figure out what the problem is and then asking the question of how broad is this problem? So if we understand what the problem is, is this something that's really unique because this customer's in some, you know, Eastern European country that has a certain way of maybe doing taxes that no one else does. Right. Um, you know, you get interesting things like one of the ones that we that we haven't taken on, but you see is like uh, multiple currency support. So businesses that are operating across multiple currency domains. And it's like, well, okay, how common, how common is that? Right. So um, then we can kind of start thinking of it through that lens. And one of the kind of two-sided decision-making things, I think, as an early stage business and, and potentially as any stage business, is this really tricky question of when are you trying to like broaden the net? So if you're looking at your market, your niche, and it's like, let's say like multiple currency support as an example. So we don't do that right now. So basically, you know, if there's a, a agency that operates across multiple currencies, you know, we can't support that. So they're outside of who we can serve, you know, it doesn't make sense for us to broaden that net. So to do that work, to broaden what our product does so it can support that. Or are we better off investing more into the people that we are already successful for? And I think, especially in the early days, there's a sense of like, oh, we just need to broaden the product. We need to broaden the product. We need to broaden the product. And that's how we're going to get to success. But often what ends up happening is you just end up with such a complex, diluted, messy yeah uncohesive product that's not really useful for anyone. So it's like one of these like leaps of faith to say like, okay, who is our customer? And is that, you know, is there enough market there? Like that's important, but like, who's the customer? And then let's focus on making it better for that customer and then be deliberate when you're going to widen that net. So don't do that just like through, you know, individual feature requests going like, okay, is this us, you know, looking at broadening the market, broadening our niche, Let's do that strategically and deliberately. Is this the right niche to go after if we're going to do that? Because another thing that I harp on is usually that one feature request. If the customer is not fit for your product and they come in and they want one thing, you build that one thing, they're going to want something else. And then they're going to want something else. They're going to want something else. So you end up just chasing them. Yeah. And then on the side of uh, charging for it, which was the other side of it, I I was at a conference talk once and someone was talking about this. and And basically they were saying like, Never do custom development for a customer 
because like it's the worst decision we also made, but it's also critical. The money that we got from doing it was also critical for building the business. And we went through exactly the same thing. We had yeah. an early client that basically funded the business for the first few years. And it was all custom, all one off. And it was a huge distraction. There'd be points where it was like three quarters of my time was going to doing custom development for a single customer. And, you you know, just even just the amount of internal time, discussion, sure. stress that went to this one customer. Sure. But we learned a lot. It got a lot of money in the door. So like my, the one rule of thumb I have for that is to price it such that you're, you feel equivalently about either, either decision. So price it such that if the customer walks away, you're okay with them walking away. But also if they agree, you, they're paying you so much that you're also okay with it. Yeah. You know, and, and if you, if you haven't priced it there where when they say yes, you're okay with it because it's paying so damn much money, increase the price. And maybe they say no, but you saved yourself this massive headache, but at least if they say yes, it, it, it's worth your time. Yeah, that's a good filter. I, I like the, the, the thought process behind it as well. I'm curious how you say no to your team. Do you just walk them back through that kind of problem-centric thinking or the model and say, this is why we're saying no? I think I had a mentor years ago who said that true leadership is the ability to say no more often than we say yes. And it's it's hard when we're now working with Gen Z and the early last half of Gen Y that grew up in the whole participation ribbon, you know, congratulations, you've got your 12th place ribbon. No one ever said no to them before. How do we say no in the workplace more? Is it by using a model? It's a great question. I'm still figuring this out. I had an employee who's, who uh, was working for me at one point, really smart kid, really promising, Gen Zer, young guy. And he was really frustrated because, you know, he's reading the blogs, listening to the podcasts, you know, and, uh, you know, getting the ideas and things that he knows, you know, the things that people should be doing, that the company should be doing. He's really frustrated because he was like telling people the things to do and he was getting no's. Yeah. And I'm going, well, like the knowing what to do is the easy part, but like knowing how to influence people, you know, becoming that, you know, that change agent and developing that skill set of, you know, how to get people on board, how to understand your stakeholders, what their priorities are, what their goals are, you know, and align things. That's the much more powerful skill and, mm. and the much harder skill to develop. Mm. So that's one thing is like, first of all, like if someone wants something, it's like if other people are not convinced, you have to take ownership of that, you know, of, of how understanding how they're going to make their decisions and, and influencing them. So that, that's one side of it. The other side of it is I I always like to share context. Um, I, I'm very big on like, you know, trying to dump as much technical context, history, business context, goals, vision. And the trick is a lot of time people just don't, aren't interested in the full unabridged version of the answer to the question. Yeah. But on the other hand, they also often don't just want the no. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, that's something that I'm still working on is trying to get better at figuring out which degree of answer, you know, where on that spectrum to be answering a, a question from. And, and that, that's still a learning process for me. Like I, at one point in my career, it was just a, a no. And then I used to use this phrase. I don't use it as much, but it used to be 
everything's a question of cost or the laws of physics. That was, that was one answer I would give. <laughs> I, I created something a few years ago for our COO Alliance, and I called it a decision filter. And the basic idea is come to me with your idea, but then you run your idea through the filter before you pitch me on it. And it's kind of like, what are the best, coast, best case scenarios? What are the outputs going to be? What's the amount of time involved? What's the amount of people involved? How much money do we have to contribute? What's the ROI off those three things? And then you show me why we're actually doing this. And often people will come in, they run their idea through the filter and they say no before I even get a chance to. Yeah. Because they, well, they just won't bother because there's so much work like that. That's so that this is I, I call it the, the couldn't couldn't we just or couldn't you just. And this is both a thing from customers as well as an internal thing like, oh, couldn't we just do this? Couldn't we just use this tool? You know, tools. Oh, my God. Like, oh, I found this tool. Couldn't we just use this? And it's like, okay, are you asking me to spend the 15 hours is going to take me to fully research this tool? Is this the question that you're asking me is that the most important thing for me to do right now is drop the other priorities I'm working on right. and fully? Because there's a course, especially today, you know, there there's new tools and technologies coming out way faster than than anyone could evaluate them. So that's... Yeah, sometimes I get frustrated with the couldn't you just or couldn't, couldn't you just. just. How do you go about evaluating all the different tools and, and um, kind of parts of the tech stack? How do you as a company evaluate those? Yeah, man, you know, the, ultimately you, you have to build something. You know, like that. that's really the, like, I don't know if you're familiar with a tool called Retool. No. But it's this, it's one of these like kind of no code UI builders. Okay. And um, it's actually a really, really impressive tool. And it's much more powerful than I expected it to be and, and has all kinds of great little UI components that you can stick together. And I was trying to use it to build kind of a, a prototype customer UI. And um, again, my first evaluation, it was looking really promising the first hour or two. And then, you know, I start trying to actually build something for real. And then you start hitting all these edge cases, you know, the little ways in which it doesn't quite work for the problem space. And then I'm going to gain on calls with their solution engineers and, you know, trying things in different ways. And, you know, the overall evaluation process there is probably, you know, 20, 25 hours of work before finally arriving at a, a decision that like it just it just wasn't worth it. Mm. So, um, you know, in, in 20 or 25 hours of my time, I can build quite a bit and you always want to be careful of that reinventing the wheel, the wheel and, you know, build versus buy. But, you know, if, if I build something, you know, I, I know the limitations of it. I know the constraints. Um, I know the bounds. So something needs to be pretty compelling, you know, just in terms of the initial research. And, and this is one of these tough things too. It's like, again, I'm, I'm 15 years into my career in software at this point. And um, at, at a previous job, at a previous life, my, my role there was the chief architect of the company. So I did a lot of this kind of technology evaluation. And that's one of the skills I think you develop, you know, kind of on the architect side is that, you know, to, to look at a technology and really the key question I, I like to look at when I'm looking at, at kind of any tool or technology is, you know, what problem is this intended to solve? I'm, I'm a big believer in using things for the thing they're meant to be used for. And unless it's like clearly such a tight fit to the problem I'm looking to solve, unless like I'm reading their, you know, the design philosophy, whatever, and I'm just like, this is exactly what I'm looking for. If there's not that kind of tight alignment, 
chances are it's actually just not going to be worth it. Well, so you actually prefer to build versus to um, buy or plug in something that's free. Oh yeah. Especially if it's free, man, free is, free is dangerous because especially these days, because things tend to not stay free. Mm, you know, there, right. there was a time right. 10 years ago, 15 yeah, there was years a time ago. when free was free for three years. Now it's free mm -hmm. until you're addicted to 10 days later mm -hmm. and then you're fucking mm -hmm. sucked into their, and their... they come in and, and they'll change, they'll change the limits. They'll change the pricing structure. Yeah. Um, companies used to be far more resistant to do that, but like now the chances that like, you're going to like build, you know, build this platform as like a key piece of your, of your product or something. And then three months later, they come to you and like, oh yeah, now this is going to cost you $500 a month. Maybe that's maybe that's fine. Maybe that makes sense. You know, maybe maybe it doesn't. Um, so free, free. I'm I'm very I'm very wary of free. <laughs> so you you came into the company as a co-founder and as the second in command. You know, the, you've got a CEO who is a co-founder. How did you decide the roles and responsibilities that you would each have? I mean, it's pretty clear on the technical side why you're playing in that world. So, and then what's it like being a co-founder of a company? What are some of the challenges and struggles you had in in getting to where you are? First of all, I'm I'm a big believer in having a co-founder. I you know that that's what I've done pretty much through through my whole career. And it really helps bridge I you know the loneliness of entrepreneurship. In this case, in the case of Paraquito, the split of responsibilities was actually pretty easy because we have very complementary interests and, and skill sets. So it's not, it's not by accident. We, you know, I put a lot of work into who I choose to work with and we put work into that early in the process, but we're very fortunate in that we have very similar values, a so very good value alignment, very good goal alignment and very complementary skills. So that was actually, you know, pretty easy to draw those lines at the start. And then the one, the one kind of point of contention is like as a two person you know, co-founding group, which also I, I really like three people is dangerous, which is a whole other conversation. But what about when you disagree? And, um, you know, that's an explicit conversation we have. I think all co-founders should, you know, again, what is the decision-making tree? And effectively, if we disagree and it's in either of our clear areas of ownership, then the person who owns that area, you know, like if it's a technology decision or a product decision, and we disagree, then, you know, I, I'll get the ultimate trump card. If it's like a sales or marketing decision, he will. And then ultimately, if it if it doesn't fit under that, our, our decision is the CEO gets the trump card. So like at the end of the day, you know, if, if we don't have any other way to resolve uh, a disagreement, then he's going to get get to make that decision. And, and um, you know, I agree to that. I think there's a different degree of responsibility of being the you know, the CEO, the the number one, the person who's, you know, ultimately going to be responsible for everything in the organization. How um, many employees do I, you I have today? A, so we, we're five full-time, including the founders. So we have three full-time, and then we've got a handful of contractors that do, you know, various things for us. So, you know, mostly on the sales and marketing side, but in a few different places in the business. And how are you able to stay so lean? I mean, so many companies tend to kind of bloat at those early stages, you guys are already up, you're running, you've got proof of concept, you've got good revenue and customer base. How are you able to stay so lean? Yeah. So man, it's another question. There's a lot of pieces underneath. So, so one thing is we ran this business with just the two of us um, as the only employees, even though we weren't even technically employees because we weren't paying ourselves for, 
for years. And it was really just trying to find, you know, the the point of leverage, the point of traction before scaling things up. And, you know, we, we evolved how we thought about that and how we worked about that. Um, but that was kind of like the initial strategy was to to stay very lean, you know, have all the agility that comes with being lean, of course, of the reduced costs that, that comes with that. And then for us as a company today, we're very deliberate and diligent about looking at our forecast. So, you know, planning out where we think the business is going to be, you know, how much business we're going to have coming in, how much capacity we need to serve that. And we use a lot of that to base um, our hiring decisions. So our hiring decisions are are very deliberate and targeted at, you know, where we need them to target. So that certainly helps as well. But uh, the the flip side of it is, you know, sometimes I think if anything, we're too conservative. And, you know, it's, it's one of these things that, you know, you always have to play with, especially in the uncertainty of, of an early stage company and startup is, you know, how aggressively do you want to make bets? And especially often when those bets involve cash and you, you know, you only have so much cash, but there's, there's two ways that you leave money on the table. And, and one way, you know, you, you leave money on the table is by, you know, not going after the opportunity aggressively enough. So, you know, you're, you, you, you could be further along and time is expensive. So even as lean as we are, you know, every month, two months, three months, that we go slower than we could be going, that's a lot of, you know, opportunity costs. Yeah. So we're playing with all the time. And again, in our kind of comfort way of running the business is very disciplined, very cash efficient. So often we have to push ourselves to go a little bit more aggressively and and deploy a little bit more capital, um, put yourself out there. And then be forgiving to ourselves when we make mistakes that end up costing a lot of money. Like it's easy to go like, shit, you know, we wasted 30K on hiring that employee that we shouldn't have hired. You know, that that's really easy to blame yourself for. And what's less clear to see is like, shit, we could have made 30K more revenue if we had moved a bit more aggressively. That's less, less apparent, less transparent. Right, right. That's interesting. Those are really interesting insights, actually, for leadership teams to kind of debrief with each other on your right, because it is very easy to blame yourself for mistakes. It's not very easy to blame yourself for missed opportunities that you're not even considering or thinking about. So I want you to go back to the 22-year-old Ben and give yourself some advice. What advice would you give the the 21 or 22-year-old who's just starting out in your career that you know to be true today? Okay. One thing is I, in my career, I was always biasing towards equity. So when I was evaluating opportunities, I always wanted the long-term upside. And, you know, my vision of that was I was playing the long game. You know, it's like, I don't want to just earn a salary. You know, I want to, I want financial freedom. I I want that upside. I want to see the upside of the things I'm investing my energy into. And I believe I dramatically over-indexed for equity. The reality is, and like, I've, I've actually had some pretty, pretty good luck in in the overall spectrum of how those things can go. But equity, especially in early stage private companies, has such a long and uncertain path to liquidity. Oh, for so, sure. So like you say you get, you're an early stage employee and you get 5%, you know, in, in a new startup, even if that startup becomes a unicorn, you know, it, it gets, gets funding, it goes series A, B, C, D, 
you know, it gets to IPO and, and you get liquidity, that could be 15 years down the road. So in the meantime, like in theory, you have all this wealth, but you, you can't touch it. You know, it's it's monopoly money in, until liquidity happens. Yeah. Where there's a lot of opportunities that, you know, drive cash flow much earlier and, you know, cash is king. So just in terms of utility money, you know, what's better, you know, having 3 million in the bank or having like this theoretical 30 million of net worth that you may or may never actually get, you know, liquidity on. And that company could go, you know, it could go WeWork, right? <laughs> you know, you could be, you know, sitting here with, um, you know, these shares that that are, you know, I don't know, put them up on the wall or something because they're they're not worth anything else. Um, so that's one thing that that I think I I did kind of wrong in my path is not pursuing just a little bit more liquidity, a little bit more cash in the bank. It's interesting if I go back to kind of the 2000, 2001 implosion of the the NASDAQ, where the NASDAQ dropped by 78%. There was an entire wave prior to that from 95 to 2000, where everybody wanted equity in lieu of compensation. When the NASDAQ blew apart, everybody wanted equity as well as compensation. It was really interesting to watch people go from they re recognized that equity was just a was a bet and it really wasn't a sure yeah. thing anymore. And like, again, even when things go well, like this is just kind of like a, a general portfolio wealth principle. You end up in the situation where so much of your net worth is in a single asset. No matter what, that's always a bad idea. Even if you have the best leadership, the smartest people, the best technology, something can happen, you know, like. Some, you know, Google or Amazon come into your space, some new disruptive technology emerges, you know, some, it gets banned by the government, like so many things outside of your control could happen. So like, this is another these things where you see these, you know, people working at these tech companies and they're making great money, but then they're also getting these, these stock plans and then they're leaving, like sell your, your stock. Like if so much of your livelihood, your income is based on this one company, get as much that you can out of it, you know, sell that stock, buy something totally. else, you know, it's crazy. Yeah, I've seen I've seen a lot of people who all of a sudden, even as entrepreneurs keep doubling down on the bet that the record will be worth something and it's not really there. All right, Ben Zitlau, the CTO of Parakeeto. Thanks so much for sharing with us on the Second Command podcast today. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's been fun. Appreciate it. You've been listening to Second in Command, brought to you by COO Alliance founder, Cameron Harold. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to like, share, and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and our other podcast streaming platforms. For more best practices from industry-leading COOs, visit COOalliance.com.